Really? I am far from cliche. Hello, I'm Steve Reed, and this is Steve Reed Chats. This mini-series is all about something that I've always been fascinated by and something that really intrigues me. UFOs, the paranormal, and beyond. Subscribe and turn on your notifications to make sure you know when the next episode is ready to listen to. And I have got some amazing special guests through this mini-series that have some great experiences and stories to tell. So let's go ahead and meet the person I'm going to be speaking to on this episode. He is the Professor of Science at Harvard University in the United States, author of world-renowned books, including, most recently, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And with all that information whizzing around his head, it's no wonder he's a fan of going out for a light early morning jog when the world around him is generally still sleeping. Hello, Mr. Love. Hi, nice nice to speak with you. And you now, do you, do you prefer Abraham, Avi, or Mr. Loeb? Avi, um, you can think of me as a farm boy that just followed his childhood curiosity. All the labels um, that relate to my career are not very significant for me. I'm glad you said that rather than Mr. Loeb, because that does sound like the next Bond villain. And I wouldn't want to put that on you. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure there. Okay. Yeah, now- by the way, I don't, I don't really care how, you know, what labels people put and what, how many likes I get on Twitter. I'm not subscribed to social media. So I'm really, um, as they say in basketball, I, I keep my eyes on the ball. And you're not missing much, I'll be honest with you. Now, the, we, we got a lot to talk about today. So I'm going to get straight into something that's really uh, interested me. The most recent scientific news I've read about is that Jupiter, uh, the moon, one of the moons of Jupiter, Europa, as viewed by a passing probe, has had a more prolonged vapor emission seen at one of its poles and it's believed that a mass ocean could be below the surface of Europa. There's also Saturn's moon, Titan, where there's similar evidence of ice or liquid. And there's an interesting ongoing research, isn't there, for quite some time now of ice found on comets. So tell me about why those discoveries are so significant in the jigsaw for search for potential life in space. Well, uh, in fact, there is one more example, which is uh, Enceladus, where a recent uh, mission found uh, those geysers, uh, uh, eruptions of uh, jets uh, of water vapor coming from cracks in the ice. And they indicate that perhaps there as well, just like in Europa, there is an ocean under the icy surface. And that's what people suspect, that there is liquid water there. And of course, the question is whether there is life in that liquid water. Maybe there are fish swimming there. (laughs) Who knows? Um, And the the way to find out is, of course, to find that, I mean, obviously, you can search uh, with high resolution images for fish, dead fish on the surface of the ice that were, (laughs) that came from the cracks. But, (laughs) but uh, that's unlikely. Uh, One way to find out is uh, to search for um, molecules that uh, are complex enough that they cannot be produced naturally by by chance and are most likely indicative of uh, life forms under the surface of of those objects. And um, in order to find those molecules, uh, what you need is a flyby that uh, actually crosses the path of these jets of uh, water vapor and perhaps uh, scoop some material from those 
geysers and uh, and analyze uh, the molecular composition of that material. And uh, that could inform us whether there is uh, potential evidence for complex molecules that indicate that life exists under the surface. The more difficult approach is to drill, <laughs> I mean, land on, on Europa and then uh, drill all the way down. And that requires much more energy, much more sophistication. Uh, nature provided us with these cracks that allow us to get a glimpse as to what may happen under the ice. And we should look into that. Now, of course, any form of life that exists just in liquid water without any rocky uh, material nearby, as you have on Earth, uh, would be uh, probably much more primitive than we have on Earth because uh, it's thought that complex life on Earth emerged from the interface between rocks and liquid water. And just having liquid water and an ocean world may not lead to uh, complex life forms the way we find them here on Earth. But but any form of life would be extremely interesting because it will tell us that we, you know, we are not alone in some sense. And the search continues. And, and that actually leads on really nicely to this, because until fairly recently, science ruled out anything being able to survive in extreme cold. So if we look out to us that far into the universe, it, it's not exactly uh, a warm day in summer like we experience here on Earth. And it was found not to be the case right here on Earth. Am I right in saying that small worm-type creatures were found to survive in extreme low temperatures and also not just survive but reproduce within solid ice? Yeah, that, that raises the possibility that perhaps icy objects out there may have life uh, surviving in them as they travel uh, between planets, for example, in a given planetary system. So you can imagine objects coming to Earth from, for example, Mars and vice versa and surviving the cold uh, conditions in space. And so that's called panspermia, where life can be transferred on rocks. And uh, uh, of course, one can imagine also exchanging life between stars this way. Uh, we don't know if it happens. One thing to keep in mind is, even if you restrict life to the surface of planets like the Earth, we now know that about half of the sun-like stars have a planet roughly the size of the Earth at roughly the same separation. So uh, actually the Earth-Sun system is, is not very rare. And that means that, you know, uh, since most stars from billions of years before the Sun, uh, that in fact there could have been uh, something like us that predated us. And uh, the only way to find out is by searching for any relics that technological civilizations may have sent into space. Um, that's a very different approach than we used in the past when we lo were looking for radio signals. Uh, in, in order to detect the radio signal, it's just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be active at the time, and it needs to use the same technology as you are using. But if they sent equipment into space, it's just like plastic bottles on the surface of the ocean. We can search for them at any time, uh, even if the sender is not alive anymore or using a different technology by now. So my point is, we are likely uh, to find something if we just search. If we decide that we know the answer in advance, of course, we won't find anything. Now, there is a difference between water or ice found on Earth and what's believed to be different within space. What is the difference and how would that affect chances of how we know discovering living organisms to be? Right. So the first thing to know about water, which is really <laughs> essential for life as we know it, 
the, all the chemistry of life as we know it is in water. And for liquid water to exist, you need an external pressure of an atmosphere like we have here on Earth. If you were to take a block of water ice and put it in space and warm it up, it will go straight into gas, straight into vapor without going uh, into a liquid phase. And therefore, the chemistry of life would not be possible. So now you ask, okay, where can I have liquid water? Well, it's only on a planet, a big enough object that can maintain an atmosphere. And it turns out that we have next to us a neighbor called Mars. And the main difference between Mars and Earth, even though they are roughly at the same distance from the sun, you know, they, 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 the main difference is that Mars is 10 times lighter and it was not able to maintain its atmosphere. So it lost its atmosphere, even though early on it had an atmosphere and we believe it had liquid water on the surface. We see the evidence of that. The Perseverance rover is now going uh, in a delta, pr probably created by a river uh, of liquid water. So we have evidence that there was liquid water on Mars. There was an early atmosphere, but then the, the, the Mars was not massive enough to retain the atmosphere. So it lost it. And once it lost it, it became a desert. So all the liquid water evaporated. And we can search if there was life early on on Mars. But right now, we don't see anything crawling on the surface. There is no liquid water. And uh, the lesson of that story is you need a planet roughly the mass of the Earth uh, in order to retain the atmosphere. The Earth did it. And um, so you can't have an atmosphere on objects much smaller than the Earth, um, much smaller um, than what we enjoy right now. And uh, so um, the lesson from that is, you know, we, we could imagine liquid water, chemistry of life as we know it, uh, on planets, roughly the mass of the Earth around other stars, but not much smaller. So if you imagine, for example, asteroids, they are much less massive than the Earth. They cannot retain an atmosphere. They cannot have, have liquid water on their surface. However, you could potentially have ice on the surface and then deep in the interior, you can have liquid water like we were talking about before in the case of Enceladus or Europa. That is possible um, because the interior is warmed up, for example, by radioact radioactivity. Uh, so you can keep liquid water in the core of an icy object that is embedded in cold space and whether life exists in such conditions is to be found. You know, that's something we should uh, examine and, and search for. But it will not be the same as life on Earth in the sense that there wouldn't be any rock touching uh, oceans that could allow the complex forms of life as we know it. And that opens the wider question, which there's also another um, time to talk about this, is how water ever arrived on Earth and another great debate for another time. Earlier in the year, there was so much chat about your suggestion of the first interstellar visitor to Earth, which, if I remember correctly, that was back in 2017. Uh, some people listening to this might have just opened their eyes a little bit wider and said, wait, what, did I miss that? What was that all about? For those that aren't aware... Tell us about the details of that potential interstellar visitor and why it's so significant for you within science. Yeah, um, so this was the first object spotted near Earth that came from outside the solar system. And we knew that because it moved too fast to be bound to the sun. It was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii called 
called Pan Stars, and, and this object was given the name Oumuamua, which means uh, a messenger from afar uh, arriving first in the Hawaiian language. And it was discovered in October 2017. And at first, astronomers thought it must be a rock of the type that we have seen in the solar system, but it didn't look like a comet or an asteroid in the sense that there was no cometary tail around it. The Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply for any traces of carbon-based molecules or dust around it. There was nothing. There was a very tight limit on a cometary tail. And as a result, it's not a comet, definitely not a comet of Uh, the type that we have seen. And uh, then people said, okay, well, maybe it's just rock, not covered with any ice, so nothing evaporates from it. Uh, The problem is that as it was tumbling every eight hours, uh, the amount of light reflected from it, sunlight, changed by a factor of 10. And that implied a very extreme shape. And analysis of the variation of light as it was tumbling implied that it was most likely disc-like, Uh, pancake-like shape, and then it exhibited an excess push away from the sun that could not be explained by the rocket effect because we didn't see any evaporation. So the only way I could interpret that was a reflection of sunlight is pushing it. Uh, And uh, for that, the object had to be very thin, uh, less than a millimeter. And uh, the only way I could understand that is if if the object is sort of like a sail that was manufactured by another civilization. And uh, I suggest that it's, it, maybe it's artificial in origin because nature doesn't produce such objects. Uh, and um, uh, in September 2020, there was another object discovered by Panstars, the same telescope, that uh, shared the qualities of Oumuamua. It exhibited an excess push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight without any cometary tail, no evaporation. And then it was found a few weeks later that this is actually a rocket booster that we launched in 1966 um, to the moon. And and, uh, we know that it had thin walls and that's why it had a large area for its mass. So here is an example of an artificial object that behaved just like a muamua. And uh, we know it's artificial because we produced it. Mm. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? And I should say, that's not a philosophical question. You know, the, there are philosophers trying to argue uh, by abstract reasoning that Oumuamua could not have been artificial. And I say, you know, we made this mistake four centuries ago when philosophers argued that they don't want to look through Galileo's telescope because they know the answer. They know that the sun moves around the earth back then. And they were completely wrong. So we shouldn't repeat that mistake Uh, we should find the answer through our telescope. And that means trying to get a high-resolution image of a future object that looks just like Oumuamua, behaves like Oumuamua, looks uh, different from any comet or or, uh, asteroid we have seen before. Because otherwise, you know, it, it, it would be like a caveman finding a cell phone and arguing based on experience, that the cell phone must be a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Mm. And of course, uh, if you if the caveman throws away that cell phone, um, then uh, that would be the end of it. But if the caveman presses a button and records his voice, and then presses another button and records his image, it will become clear that this is not a rock. And um, we should do the same. We should just get more data on a future object of this type and perhaps uh, press some buttons. 
Yeah, well, you've certainly pressed some buttons by suggesting what it might be as well, which is which is great. You know, I I was thinking as you were talking there that there's one simple answer as to uh, some people might ask right now. So why have we not seen any more of these? Well, my answer to that would be is because we weren't looking enough. And over the last, you know, if you think about science in the last 100 years, it's come on so much in the our technology to be able to search and look into places where we never thought possible 100 years ago. And I'm I'm excited about the next hundred years to come based on the foundations we, we've laid there. I mean, um, the answer is, again, quite simple. It, there is nothing uh, philosophical in this. The Panstar survey is the first one where we had a survey of the sky and were sensitive to an object the size of a football field that reflects sunlight within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. So the reason we haven't seen that before is because we didn't have a powerful enough telescope to survey the sky and look for objects of this size reflecting sunlight within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Okay, Smaller objects, by the way, reflect less sunlight, so pan stars could not have discovered them, and there might be many more of them. So the point is, we are limited by the instruments we're using. Yes. And of course, you can always say, I don't want to look through my window, I don't have neighbors, there is no point in looking through my windows. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if you don't check, you will not find them. And by the way, not looking through your windows will not get rid of your neighbors. That's something to keep in mind. Just like the philosophers not looking through Galileo's telescope didn't make the sun move around the Earth. The Earth continued to move around the sun. We use it for space missions right now. It's obvious. We can take. We could have taken one of these philosophers on a space flight and demonstrated to them, looking from afar, that the Earth moves around the sun. They would have seen it, and they would have agreed uh, on this fact. So the fact that we're completely misled by prejudice four centuries ago, you know, is their problem. They, they were they prefer to remain ignorant. We can prefer to remain ignorant, not use the most sophisticated telescopes because we believe that we know the answer, which is pretty much what was happening until recently, where no search for relics of extraterrestrial civilizations was made. And for me, the change was the discovery of Oumuamua. I was basically guided by the evidence which showed that this object is anomalous. All of this is detailed in my book, uh, Extraterrestrial. And as a result of that experience, I um, inaugurated the Galileo Project. Uh, to celebrate Galileo's approach. Uh, uh, in July 2021, uh, I received the funding at $2 million from uh, uh, people who were inspired by my book. Uh, I, didn't any, I didn't do any fundraising, but that much money allowed me to establish a project which now has more than 80 scientists involved in it, where we are trying to build telescope systems that will find objects like Oumuamua in the future but also objects closer to Earth. Uh, for example, those that were reported uh, by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in the U.S. to, to the U.S. Congress on the 25th of June, uh, 2021. Uh, these are objects whose nature is unclear, and they do not behave the way that our technologies allow us to understand. You know, uh, you make life easy for me when you include all that information because some of that I had ready to ask you. So I'm grateful for that. So you mentioned there you touched on the Galileo project and you are an, involved and have been involved in a, a number of projects. One that I'd like to ask you more about, though, is the Starshot initiative. And how did you get involved? And what is it all about? Yeah, so in May uh, 20. 
2015, um, an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley named Yuri Milner uh, came out of a black limousine next to the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University and entered the building, sat on the sofa in my office in front of me and asked me whether I'm willing to lead a project whose goal is to visit the nearest star system uh, within our lifetime. And I knew that since his age is the same as mine, I knew that he's talking about getting there within two decades, mm. you know, like, uh, and uh, it takes light four years to uh, arrive across that distance to the nearest star system. It's four light years a- a- away. So, um, and so that means that we need a spacecraft that moves at a fifth of the speed of light if we want to get there in two decades. And that's a thousand times faster than the chemical rockets that we have launched since Sputnik. And all of them were a thousand times slower than we need in this context. So I told Yuri I need some time to think about it. And six months later, uh, I reported back that the only technology which seems feasible is um, the light sail technology, which means uh, that the spacecraft doesn't carry its fuel with it. Uh, It's being pushed by light, just like the sail on a boat, which is pushed by wind, You can imagine light bouncing off a very thin film of material and giving it a push. And in principle, the advantage of that is you can push the sail with a powerful enough uh, beam of light. You can push it close to the speed of light because you are pushing it with light. And uh, the only issue is you need uh, a laser beam of 100 gigawatt, roughly, shining on a sail that weighs a few grams, Uh, roughly the size of a person, uh, over a few minutes. And then you can bring it to a fifth of the speed of light across a distance which is five times the distance to the moon. So that's the concept that we came up with, and it defined the uh, Starshot initiative. Uh, And currently we're examining the technologies needed to make it real, and that uh, includes the laser system, the sail um, and the communication between the spacecraft and Earth because we're talking about v- vast uh, distances. You've just made me a little nervous there because my son is six and I'm thinking the equation you just came up with is probably what he'll come up with as homework in a couple of years' time. So I, I really need to bring myself up to speed with, with that. It's, it's really great the way you've just explained that to me and everybody else. I really appreciate that. And what a what a delight to be involved in that and to get your teeth into, you know, it, it's, it's like going into a sweet shop for you, I'm sure, and thinking, okay, you know, what, endless tools? This is fantastic. Over the years, there's been pilots reporting information, sightings of unexplained objects in the skies, oceans, sounds, etc. Now, related to this, a relatively new element has appeared on the periodic table, M115. What can you teach me about that? So tell me a little bit about that element and also related to the discussion we were just having to do with the Starshot initiative because it, they, the two may be related in the future. As far as I know, <laughs> the periodic table is uh, pretty much complete uh, in terms of all the elements that uh, could be stable. And of course, in uh, uh, colliders of um, uh, heavy elements, um, you can end up making for a short time an element that is heavier than the most, the, the heaviest ele- element that we have in the periodic table. But there these uh, giant uh, nuclei are not very stable. Um, so, um, yeah, so, and 
as you know as far as i know the <clears throat> we haven't yet found evidence for materials that are not familiar to us you see so um now <clears throat> of course it's possible that our understanding of physics is incomplete that in the future we learn something new as a result of an encounter with something that was manufactured by another civilization and and that's what makes it interesting as a learning experience and we should be open minded but as of now the laws of physics as we know them seem to apply under all circumstances the standard model of physics is holding quite well and but there are some uh, aspects of it which are incomplete for sure you know we don't have a, a, a theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity uh, we don't understand what most of the matter in the universe is it's called the dark matter so there is matter we definitely know about it it's um, it's uh, five times more abundant in terms of uh, the mass budget than ordinary matter that we are made of we don't know what it is so you were talking about an element in the periodic table but i'm saying there is something completely different that is not familiar to us and we don't know what particles are making it and whether it's particles or maybe something else um so that's called dark matter and it's still uh, an enigma about um, almost um, 80 years after it was conjectured first by Fritz Zwicky and we know that it exists if we believe the laws of gravity that that we um, that are included in Einstein's theory of gravity and um so um so there is still to learn a, a lot for us to learn and you know one way to learn is uh, doing it uh, trying to figure it out ourselves but another one is to look over the shoulders of a smarter kid on on our in class you know on in our cosmic block and i'm very much in favor of that if if we encounter uh, a, a, some relic of another civilization that uh, predated us by a billion years and by now knows the answer to many of the questions that bother us that for which we don't know the answer uh, i would be much in favor of um, uh, getting it a leap uh, forward by uh learning from from those uh, smarter kids rather than trying to figure it out ourselves it would save us a million years <laughs> yeah. or more yes uh so uh, i don't mind um you know the blow to our ego you know you can imagine for example the perseverance rover on the surface of mars finding evidence for a uh, very primitive life that existed on early mars like microbes and of course you know everyone would be happy because we feel superior relative to those microbes uh, we are intelligent they are not but imagine perseverance bumping into the wreckage of uh, a spaceship that uh, represents technologies that are far more advanced than we possess that would be a blow to our ego i'm sure a lot of uh, people will will uh, feel upset about it because we are no longer the smartest kid on the block however I uh, you know everyone has their thoughts and feelings on how they approach things and I'm with you on that because you you do learn more from the the smart kid behind you sometimes as you put it and and it's how you take that forward together and sometimes I do feel there should be a little bit more togetherness uh, as a whole what's your feelings about science releasing information to the public and the sense of responsibility science has to provide that information for the general public Yeah so um the reason I established the Galileo project is so that first of all we will have full control over the instruments we're using so um we will know exactly how the data was collected and obviously that will be open to the public uh until now uh the identification of an 
the, the reports about unidentified um, aerial phenomena or unidentified flying objects um, were mostly classified uh, based on classified data because the data was collected by classified sensors that the government uh, is um, uh, afraid of exposing because they are used for national security purposes. And um, obviously, the at least the US government prefers the adversaries not to be aware of the technologies being used. But if you are conducting a scientific experiment, and I should say the sky is not classified, you can look at the sky, astronomers do it all the time. And if you're looking at the sky with instruments that are bought off the shelf, there is nothing classified about them, then the data will be open to the public. And that's the rationale behind the Galileo project. We uh, will collect new data from instruments that we have full control over. They are not the uh, cameras in a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet you know we we can uh, we know exactly where the cameras were located and what they were doing when the data was collected and then we can analyze it just like a scientific experiment and i believe that the data should be available to the public i don't want to uh, look at classified data because that would limit my freedom as a scientist and so science is about reproducibility of results the fact that anyone you know, can reproduce the results if they were doing the same thing at the same time. And um, that's what the Galileo project will try uh, to, to find if there, if there are some phenomena that are recurring and, and what the nature of these objects might be. Because I think, once again, if you have a big enough telescope, you can get a high resolution image of such an object that is uh, cataloged as UAP in the Pentagon report to Congress. And if we get a megapixel image of an object the size of a person at a distance of a kilometer, which is possible with a one meter telescope, then you can resolve the head of a pin. You can tell the difference between a label saying made in a country X here on earth and versus a label saying made on exoplanet Y. And um, it's all about having good enough data. You know, this is not a philosophical issue. Um, and so um, my hope is that the Gal and we are now starting to uh, purchase the instruments that we want and put them together and test them uh, within the Galileo project. Um, and um, my hope is that within a year, we will be able to start collecting data at least with one telescope system, then make uh, many copies of it and put them in different locations and uh, try to shed some scientific light on the nature of these objects. And uh, once again, this, this data would be completely open to the public and the analysis would be transparent the way it's done in science. So just uh, going back to what I've heard of then regarding the uh, element 115, is it fair to say that that may be something that is around but cannot be sustained into um, anything less than what what is just a few less than a millisecond in its form like like a lot of um elements that perhaps that we cannot classify as a sustainable element is that is that more of an accurate way of describing something of that nature yeah i mean uh, you can make um, transient structures of things that are not stable um but um um, you cannot build. You cannot have an engineering project building things out of them. That's the issue. So, um, but as I said before, you know, our understanding of nature is incomplete. We know that because we don't know what the dark matter is made of, and what, you know, depending on 
the nature of the particles that make it up. Uh, there might be some engineering prospects to that. You know, maybe you can put these particles together in a way that is not familiar to us. Now, there's um, been a, um, a release in in a, an article today that's caused a bit of a, an upstir. It's actually quite um, good timing that we're recording this today. So tell us a little bit about that article and why why you believe um, it's caused a bit of an upstir in, in the world of science. Well, I, I, I really didn't mean that. I wrote this essay for Scientific American just as an interesting thought. And then... Uh, apparently there is a, a lot of interest in it. And um, what I try to discuss is we know that the universe started from a big bang and um, we see all the evidence for that, but we don't know what predated that, what, what was there before the big bang and why did the big bang happen? Um, that's a fundamental question. And of course, people try to explain the Big Bang in various ways. Maybe it was just a fluctuation of the vacuum that, you know, by chance, uh, uh, our universe was made out of a vacuum fluctuation. Maybe a lot of universes are popping up everywhere. And then one of them is ours uh, in the landscape of, um, uh, of, of the multiverse, so-called. Um, or maybe, um, you know, we are connected to what happens in a black hole. Like if matter falls into a black hole, then it goes through the singularity and makes a new universe out of that. Um, there were all kinds of, or maybe it's a universe is bouncing. It goes through cycles where it, it contracts and then bounces and creates a big bang. And then it will contract again and bounce again. So that's a cyclic universe. There were all kinds of suggestions. Um, but what I thought about is a completely different scenario where I said, uh, you know, once uh, we develop an understanding of how to unify uh, quantum mechanics and gravity, we might understand how to create a baby universe out of nothing. Uh, and that is possible because um, what we are missing right now in understanding how to make the Big Bang is a theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity. We know that Einstein's theory of gravity is incomplete. String theory is trying to do that, but it hasn't yet converged to a predictive theory. Uh, but uh, let's imagine a future time when we would understand how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, and then we will know how to make a Big Bang. Now, if we can create it in the, in the laboratory, that offers a completely new possibility because uh, you can imagine that our universe was created in a laboratory by another civilization, a very advanced civilization, more advanced than we are. Uh, and then it created a baby universe, maybe our universe. And in that baby universe, you can imagine another civilization that is of the same level creating another baby universe. So it's just like imagining uh, a, a chicks uh, hatching out of eggs and each of those chicks is creating new eggs and you know that's the cycle of life where you have multiple generations and it can go forever uh it could go forever it could also uh, not go forever like in the case of the chicken and egg uh, dilemma the, the, uh, which is solved by saying that something else predated the chickens and the eggs but but in principle you can have an infinite series of a universe giving rise to an intelligent civilization that knows how to make a baby universe inside and creates another Big Bang that makes 
another civilization of that type, which makes another universe and so forth. And you can, this can go forever. Uh, just, and you may ask, okay, well, uh, why would the universe lead to a civilization that can create uh, another universe? And the answer is, you know, just like in Darwinian selection, only those are the universes that survive forever because, you know, they make many generations. And um, so there is this Darwinian selection of only a universe that leads to a civilization creates babies that lead to more babies and so forth. And um, we haven't yet reached that milestone of being able to create a universe in the laboratory. But I'm not worried about that because, you know, whenever I teach a class at Harvard, I tell the students, half of you are below the median of the class. This is just a statistical fact. The median is defined such that half of the class is below it. That's the definition in statistics of the median. And the students get upset because they, they, they all think that they're at the top 1% of the class. <laughs> but there is this fundamental fact, irrespective whether you are a Harvard student or not, mm. that half of the people are below the median. That's a fact. Mm. You cannot deny it. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. Half of, so I tell them, half of you are below the median. And they get upset. And um, it's one way um, of encouraging social distancing. I mean, they're going to walk out and you can have a lot more space. I mean, it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, when I apply to our civilization, I would say, you know, we are most likely to be in the middle of the bell shaped uh, curve mm. of the probability distribution of intelligent civilizations. And there must be a smarter kid on our block, you know. So the fact that we are unable to produce a baby universe right now, to me, doesn't say much because. I think it's quite likely that there is another civilization that is far more advanced. And the point is, our universe just needs one such civilization, which I call type A, that is capable of making a baby universe, because then a new universe will be created. You don't need more than one. Uh, and we are not that one. That's okay, because we're in the middle of the class, kind of. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, another one, another civilization may have done that. The reason it, it, it attracts a lot of attention is because it touches on religion, right? Because it says basically that um, if you are able to create a universe and if you are able to create, let's say, life inside of it, these are the qualities that we assigned to God in many religions. Hmm. And uh, my point is that if we ever meet a civilization that is capable of creating universes or life in them, then it, th that civilization will be a very good approximation to God. And, and, and that civilization is just a very advanced scientific or technological civilization. That's all. That's an interesting way of looking at it because you're not ruling things out. You're saying in, in a company too, it's about how things are approached in the future. When you were talking to me then, I was I was thinking about something that I, I saw recently that's a, a great thing to talk about now. Our nearest star system is uh, Andromeda. Okay. Now, as far as star systems are concerned, that's a fairly small star system. And the one thing that I learned, which I'd love you to elaborate on, is what when star systems are, when we look at their positioning obviously they don't stay in, stay in the same place and some may impact our star systems in the future so for something of such a small size as andromeda it, it's not supposed to cause too much of a problem or interference with our star system and our universe but what about a larger star system that we know to be lurking there somewhere in the universe how would that affect our 
uh, universe if it came into contact with us? Well, so Andromeda is so-called our sister galaxy. So uh, our galaxy is the Milky Way. You know, there are hundreds of billions of stars in it. Uh, that's called the Milky Way because you can see a strip of stars. Most of the stars are sitting in a disk and we are in it. So it looks, just imagine looking at a plate that is edge on, you would see a strip uh, in your field of view, which uh, relates to the plate. And that's what we see in the sky in terms of the Milky Way galaxy, which is a disk-like galaxy. And Andromeda is very similar. It's also a disk galaxy. Uh, but it's on a collision course with the Milky Way. It's approaching us. And, um, you know, I visited Australia and I was struck by by the view of the sky there. And you can, when I visited, at the time that I visited, I could see uh, Andromeda and um, and, and, um, it's approaching us at 110 kilometers per second, roughly. And that's a high, relatively high speed. So within a few billion years, it will actually you know, collide with the Milky Way galaxy. Now, most of the space between stars is empty, so not much will happen. There wouldn't be collisions of stars, for example, with one another, but what will happen after this merger takes place is that the stars will be redistributed, will be mixed up, and you will end up with a galaxy that is uh, football-shaped, these are called elliptical galaxies, and we see them. They are the results of mergers of this type. And the sun will likely be tossed away from where it is right now to the outskirts of the what I call Milcomeda galaxy. So I wrote the first paper that tries to forecast what the outcome would be in a few billion years of this merger. And this is the only paper of mine that has a chance of being cited a few billion years from now, because it will be compared to the actual view on the sky, you know, mm-hmm. if, if there is anyone left to look <laughs> at that. By the way, um, the, the sun will not necessarily die by then. So we're talking about a collision between the two galaxies that will take place before the sun dies. Because our, our theory is it's more more like double the time of that for the, the sun to um, use all all its energy up, basically. So, so right. that's, but, but that's not yeah. good news for people then at that point in two billion years living on Earth, because you kind of just flip the universe on its head. And uh, people out in the cold depths of space there on other planets are saying, well, it's certainly warmed up down this end for us. <laughs> Well, so one thing I should say is the sun, uh, you know, is evolving, obviously. And uh, within one billion years from now, the sun will uh, warm up. Uh, I mean, its surface will basically be more luminous than it is right now. It will change. It will grow in size. And that will boil off all the oceans on Earth uh, through a greenhouse uh, effect. And uh, so nothing on Earth would survive in a billion years, irrespective you know, we're talking about global warming, we're talking about all kinds of risks. Mm. Those are in the short term, but within a billion years, we won't be able to survive here. And if we want anything to be left, you know, currently all our eggs are in one basket here on Earth, we would have to move into space. And uh, that's the future, you know, that we have to think about it. Uh, We have some time, (laughs) but uh, at the end, I think we will have to build platforms on which humanity can survive Uh, in the long term. If uh, we had the technology in the future, which I'm sure you've probably fantasized about, as I have, to be able to look back in time, how proud would you be, you know, looking back a billion years and say, hey, I wrote the paper on that and uh, we listened? (laughs) 
Well, um, I should say we were not uh, that good in in, in uh, bragging uh, uh, in space. For, first of all, you see um, entrepreneurs like uh, Richard Branson or Jeff Bezos using their wealth uh, to lift their body by 1% of the Earth radius, which is really nothing. You know, um, the size of the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the radius of the Earth. So, you know, showing off in space is an oxymoron. If you just lift your body by 1% of the Earth radius, that's nothing to brag about. But even if you go back in time, you know, we sent, uh, for example, the golden record with Voyager, where we put some, uh, you know, uh, the Beatles, some some other things that we are proud of uh, about our culture. I think if an extraterrestrial would look at that, they would not be very impressed. In, in fact, they might steer their spaceship <laughs> away from Earth. Uh, but uh, even worse than that, the New Horizons uh, uh, mission uh, wanted to celebrate the contribution of Clyde Tambow, the the scientist who discovered Pluto. So they put uh, some ashes of his body on New Horizons that is making its way out of the solar system. Now, this is the wrong thing to do because what are ashes? They are burnt up DNA. You take the DNA of a person, you burn it up, you destroy all the information. The ashes are no different from the ashes of a cigarette. Mm. And you put that mm. on a spaceship to celebrate the person. If an extraterrestrial would find it, you know, they would laugh at it because there is no information content in those ashes. If you wanted to celebrate Clyde Tambo, you would put an electronic version of his DNA on the spacecraft, or you would put a stem cell there. But NASA, uh, you, which is, you know, full of scientists, decided to do the dumbest thing, which is to put uh, ashes basically burned up DNA of a person that it wants to celebrate. That doesn't make much sense. doesn't reflect very well on our science. So I'm not really happy about the way we brag in space as of now. It's uh, more of a sentimental thing, uh, I think, by the sounds of it, rather than... Um let's uh, let's recreate the person that discovered pluto but uh, yeah it's it's your analogy is almost like turning up at the barbecue too late really isn't it uh, to to not put too crude a point on it to be honest no, well, i would i would explore space with modesty a sense of modesty just trying to figure out you know what can we learn from those that are smarter than us rather than brag mm. which has been the trademark of humans so far so so from that then i get from you the money could be better spent uh, for you looking around and learning about what's deeper and further out there than going on adventures because there are a lot of people with a lot of wealth on earth and that money in your mind could be spent better elsewhere. Yes, definitely. Um, what I would say is if the Galileo project, for example, finds technologies developed by other civilizations and we wanted to import those technologies to earth, that could be worth a lot of money. So, you know, for the, these wealthy individuals, for the cost of their flights, we could have funded the Galileo project in full. You know, it, it, it requires tens of millions of dollars and maybe for a space mission, hundreds of millions of dollars to get all the science that the Galileo project aims to do uh, within a decade from now. And what I would say is that the impact on humanity would have been huge, much more so than just, you know, enjoying the view of Earth from a distance of 50 kilometers above the surface. Um, I would say, let's try and find out if 
that was something much more advanced than we are, you know, a billion years ago. And the way to do that is to look at the sky. I'll just cross the question off. Will Arvi be booking his space flight soon? Uh, no, is the answer's out. Let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> Do you know, ironically, I never, I never really, uh, I never really put that, but it's interesting. I, I guess it's a no. I, I would be happy to go to space. I should say because um, you know I enjoy nature that is unspoiled by people, and I jog every morning at five a.m. in the company of birds, uh, ducks, uh, wild turkeys, rabbits. And um, I like nature uh, the way it is. And going to space is um, an opportunity to learn about what happened without humans, you know, destroying their environment. Um, And uh, one reason uh, I'm seeking for uh, intelligence in space is because I don't often find it here on Earth. Yeah. That's a good point, which is why you you kind of mingle out and about with the ducks and the uh, whatever other wildlife loves to come along at at that time. There's something about that time of the morning. And uh, I kind of liken that to as close as you'll ever get to uh, being in space where assumably it's very silent. And there's that, you know, there's that nothing. It's it's silent and it's also dark. You know, the one one experience that... uh, astronauts reported when they uh, leave the earth is uh, the blackness of space you know something you don't see from the surface of earth because you know the sky is blue because of there are always city lights uh, reflected uh, of the of the atmosphere and um, but when you go up to space uh, you really see blackness you know that everything is black Mm. Uh, i mean of course it's not completely black because there is some uh, light uh, emitted by all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy and and in other galaxies very far away. Uh, so there is some light, but it's much dimmer than the lights we have here on Earth. And but that's most of the volume of space has nothing. You know, it's like empty. And there is something to it because you know we live in a very busy environment um, sort of like living in a city you know there, there are things happening all the time once you go away from the city into nature left on its own it's a very different reality and what i'm saying is space most of space is a very different reality than the one we are used to and just to illustrate it with an example uh, enrico fermi 70 years ago uh, posed the what is called now the fermi paradox he went to lunch at los alamos and said well, if there are extraterrestrials out there, where is everybody? Now, to me, that sounds like a very presumptuous question. It's like sitting at home, you know, enjoying um, uh, your family and then saying, well, I don't hear a knock on the door, therefore I don't have neighbors. Now, the point is, our recorded history is only 10,000 years old, and that's one millionth of the uh, age of the Earth. So, um you know, how how dare we say we don't hear a knock on the door, therefore we don't have neighbors. Um, the point is, we have to figure out that it takes a lot of time to travel between stars. You know, it takes, it could take millions of years, depending on the distance. And, and the, the fact that we don't hear a knock on the door right now when we are waiting for it doesn't mean anything. So... All the money, obviously, you agree, should uh, be put put into to more scientific research. But you wouldn't pass off a free ticket from Richard Branson or from Jeff in the future to have a little look down uh, from from uh, space to Earth. 
<laughs> Definitely, I, I would enjoy that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying that in terms of my priority list, I mm. want to figure out uh, really, uh, are we the smartest kid on the block first? That's more important to me. But going to space, I would love it. I'm just going to flip something. So we talked a lot about space. However, I've not mentioned this. Shouldn't we have a standard protocol for first contact and by that if anybody doesn't understand what i mean by that i mean should we get a visit that we're not expecting here on earth what should be in place to be able to deal with that definitely and um you know people in the past because we search for radio signals um there was not much urgency because you know the nearest star is four light years away so it takes eight years for a round trip of uh, communication um, and uh, most stars are much farther away. So if we ever detect a radio signal from an advanced civilization, we have plenty of time to decide what to do. Uh, so the protocol for responding to that is similar to the protocol for responding to a letter that arrives to you by surface mail that is very slow. Okay, You can take your time in responding to surface mail. But on the other hand, if you meet a person... Uh, you know, in your backyard, you have to decide immediately what to do, how to respond to that person. And uh, that is the experience of finding some technological relic that is smart, that is intelligent. Um, and we can imagine that because we develop artificial intelligence that drives cars. So just imagine uh, a system that we find from another civilization that is equipped with artificial intelligence. So it could be smarter than us. Uh, but it's just hardware. And the question is what to do with it. If we spot it, like with the Galileo project, if we see something advanced moving around, trying to collect information, uh, what do we do? How do we engage with it? There is no protocol for that. It was not considered by any international committee that uh, decided about guidelines. And um, I think it's something to think about, uh, given that the Galileo project is trying to find such objects. Is science, cosmology and astronomy a little bit like trying to run a hospital? Well, where, where do you put the money into first? Well, I would say that it's much simpler than that because we need to de decide about priorities. What, what, is, what are the most urgent questions? And if you look at academia right now, it's not at all organised in this way. There are large communities of physicists talking about extra dimensions on, or the landscape of string theory, things that have no implications for our daily lives. And what I'm saying is this question of searching for relics from extraterrestrial civilizations is a subject that was not funded at all, okay, that has huge impact, potential impact on the future of humanity that the public cares a lot about and that is not funded at all. So, my point is, you know, first decide about the strategy, define the question that is most exciting to you. And if you were to poll the public and poll those people who have the wealth, uh, I would be surprised if they wouldn't tell you that knowing if there is a smarter kid on our cosmic block is not at the top of the list. You know, that is something that everyone cares about. People are fascinated by. I, the reason I say that is my book became bestseller uh, and it's translated to 25 languages. I had uh, about um, uh, 1,200 interviews over a period of seven months. Um, and uh, when I announced the Galileo project, I had thousands of emails from people willing to contribute from their expertise to the project. 
and I, I got funded without any fundraising. So it's obvious to me that this is a, a very important question. Everyone wants to know the answer to, but nobody in the past uh, assembled a team of scientists that will try to address it. So what I say is our priority list is not really organized as of now. And I'm trying to say this question is really important for a lot of people, okay? And we should address it. So once you agree on that, uh, you know, then uh, the amount of money needed to address this question is really not large. You know, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds for a space mission. This is less than, uh, uh, you know, the, the Large Hadron Collider, the James Webb Space Telescope. These projects required $10 billion. Mm. Uh, you know, the best we can hope uh, with such projects is to discover the nature of dark matter, for example, that will have zero impact on our daily lives. But think about it. If we invested a billion dollars in the search for equipment sent by other civilizations and we find the answer, that would have a huge impact on humanity, on the way we think about ourselves, on religion, on um, uh, our aspirations in space. So how can we shy away from this question? No, it's a, it's a really good point. I'll end on a fairly straightforward question. What do you believe to be humanity's biggest threat from outer space? Oh, uh, from outer space, it's probably asteroids. The you know the, the same thing that killed the dinosaurs uh, 66 million years ago. There was an asteroid, a rock the size of Manhattan Island. Um, but I think the biggest threat to humanity is not coming from outer space. It's uh, self-inflicted wounds. We just we are not careful enough uh, to plan ahead. We are. Um, we are engaged in rivalries between nations, you know, the, some groups of people trying to feel superior relative to other groups of people. Um, and um, that's not the best uh, path to prosperity. Um, we don't care about, uh, in terms of policy uh, making, we, we don't care as much about our environment as, as we care about, you know, military confrontations or, or other, you know, uh, economic uh, superiority. Um, and so uh, what I would say is we have a long way to demonstrate that we are intelligent because the way I define intelligence is um, being guided by science. And the guiding principle of science is uh, sharing evidence-based knowledge. So we are not sharing a lot. That, that was clear from the COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, the, the data from uh, Wuhan, China was not shared with the rest of the world. It could have saved a lot of lives. And the second thing is we don't base our policy on evidence very often. So I think we have a way to go, but um, I hope that we'll get our act together because otherwise we may have only a few centuries left. I think the, the, the word that I come up with in over a previous discussion with one of the other chats I've had is the word trust, unfortunately. And that's a big deal. You know, in the science world, there seems to be a lot more um, countries working together behind the scenes uh, to a common goal. And much like you've just said, I, I just don't see that humanity's got itself into this situation where there's that big word of trust. And who's going right. to who's going to blink first? Yeah, and if you think about it from uh, the big picture perspective, it's a way of uh, Darwinian selection. You know, if if we don't get our act together, if we behave in a way that is not very smart, then we are doomed to perish and disappear. Okay, and there there were a lot of species that you know that didn't survive throughout uh, the evolution 
of the earth and okay so what you know the, the cosmos doesn't really care about it uh darwinian selection basically says if you are able to adapt to changing circumstances and in, in, in just the right way then you will survive and if we are not smart enough to do that we will go away and nobody would care if you look at the vastness of of the universe you know who cares whether humans continue to to exist or not and and by the way there could have been a lot of other civilizations out there that were not smart enough but those that were smart enough perhaps continue to exist so maybe some of the decision makers from across the world uh, as well as having the climate um, get together should all book a ticket to the museum and um, have a look at the empty space available for a potential placement yeah i th- i think our future is really in space uh, and moreover we can learn something by finding others that predated us out there and uh, you know we are uh the way we behave always reminds me of my daughters when they were at home uh, at a young age they tended to think that they are the smartest in the world that the world centers on them and of course that changed when we brought them to the kindergarten and they met others and i very much hope that our civilization would mature uh and the way to do that is by meeting others that's a lovely way to to finish up you know there's so much information that you've provided today and you can find out more about uh, rv Loeb's work projects and publications including the best-selling books like extraterrestrial just type in a-v-i-l-o-e-b into your search box and it will all come up uh rv it's been a real pleasure i know your time is uh, is is valued by me and everyone listen listening so thank you for speaking with me today Thank you, Steve. It was a great pleasure. You've been listening to Steve Reed Chats, Series 1, Episode 3, with Arvi Loeb. And it was truly gratifying to speak with a pioneer in the search for intelligence in such depth. A conversation I'm going to always cherish. You can listen back to the first series of Steve Reed Chats right now. Maybe you've not heard my chat with Nick Pope or the paranormal episode with Heather Taddy. I'll be back with Series 2 of Steve Reed Chats about a different subject in the near future. Subscribe and turn on your notifications and you'll always hear about the latest episode first.